What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, Jeff Mills, and Pete Najarian, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Ahead on fast. No matter how you slice it, it's been a bad week, a bad month, a bad year to invest in China. From lockdowns to crackdowns to slowdowns. Putting money to work in China has been a bad bet. Is it finally time to bail on Beijing? Plus, a long, strange trip to nowhere. The COVID darlings that are right back where they started two years later. We'll name the names and ask what is next for these pandemic high flyers. And then we'll show you why betting against Kathy Wood is proving to be more profitable than betting with her. But we start off with a shutdown heard round Wall Street, a spike in COVID cases in China forcing the country to close down major manufacturing centers in Shenzhen and Changchun. 1,300 new cases were reported on the mainland yesterday, bringing the total number this year to over 9,000. More than were recorded all of last year. The shutdown prompting new concerns for companies that operate or source their products in China. Just look at the moves lower in names like Las Vegas Sands, Wynn, Starbucks, and Nike. Those stocks trading at 52-week lows. Apple and Qualcomm also dropping sharply. The news also taking a toll on the broad markets, all of which close off the highs of the day. The Nasdaq down more than 2%. So do investors need to brace for even more supply chain snafus and more trouble selling products in China, Karen, we were just discussing this. I don't know what the market makes of it. It seems like they want to look past any sort of supply chain disruptions. Yeah, it's sort of surprising to me. We were just talking that, that the 10-year bond yields were higher today. I would have thought there would be a flight to quality and sort of a, the idea of, all right, a slowdown, an economic slowdown as a result of this. That this, this all we're seeing right now, that isn't the extent of it, right? We think it could be a lot worse. And so I'm surprised that the market reacted the way it did. So, I mean, that was good for financials. That was nice. But um, I don't know. I sort of felt like I was surprised when the market was up earlier. I wasn't expecting it. I thought the Moderna spike was very interesting. Maybe they'll be supplying vaccines there. Who knows? I don't know. It's still a treacherous market. The VIX started to started to elevate. Mm-hmm. Pete will probably speak to that more. But that was sort of interesting to me because I, I didn't feel as panicky. And I want I want to see panic before I really start buying a lot of stuff. Right. Panic equals the road to capitulation at the very least. Guy, what did you make of the action today? I mean, it, it You know, we've been talking about how companies are seeing sort of the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to supply chain concerns. And we know that China, with their zero COVID policy, they shut down immediately. I mean, a port can be shut down tomorrow because there are, you know, cases of of dock workers being sick. So it, it seems like a curious reaction to me. Lots unravel here. It's interesting we use the word panic. I mean, I understand why we use it, but I would submit for the last few weeks The days that have been panicked are the days when the market goes significantly higher. You know, it's interesting. You know, the panic seems to be on the upside, which leads me to believe there's still uh, further room to the downside. And again, Karen said it, I'll say it. Pete can speak to the VIX without question. But I find it interesting that since late February, and now we're obviously, you know, mid-March-ish, 
The VIX has been elevated above 30. We haven't seen that in a long time. We've seen spikes, one or two day moves and subsequently right back lower. That's not what we're seeing right now. And in terms of China quickly, that's one facet of the China potential problem in the market. I mean, God forbid if they were to sort of align with Russia with what's going on there. And there have been talks about that. I don't know what that. Well, I think I know what it means for the broader market, but I would submit it's not good. And then obviously the potential for China and Taiwan again to rear its ugly head. So it doesn't feel over to me. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I'll say this quickly. Nike, one of the names under significant pressure, they report this time next week. You know, if Nike to get down to 105, that prior all-time high, all the way back to January of 2020, you can make a great case for Nike on valuation. And we haven't said that in a long time. Pete, what do you make of the, of the VIX being elevated for so long? Yeah, it's pretty interesting, Mel. And obviously, there's plenty of fuel to be able to hold this thing up there for a little while longer. As a matter of fact, and I heard John on there, but I'll, I'll reiterate what he was talking about, which was the volatility index and the call buying that we had seen in there today. They were buying the June 70s, Mel. They only bought 82,000 of them. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really amazing when I see something like that. It doesn't mean necessarily the VIX is going to 70, but... It certainly does mean that somebody out there has some sort of sense that there's going to be a pretty good spike in the volatility index and that it's sometime between now and all the way out to June. So they're paying for that money to go all the way out to June. It is an interesting thing to see it elevated the way we're seeing it right now, holding above 30. But let's be honest, when we talk about this, and you and I were talking about this just last week, I think, we were talking about it's been hanging above 30 even when we haven't had those 2% moves on the S&P 500. But we are seeing this intraday movement that we are seeing, and the markets have been literally all over the place, and the velocity of those moves up and down. Great example today when you look over at the Dow, which was up over 400-plus points at one point in the day, and then finished where it did, basically call it flat, while the NASDAQ was under pressure the entire day, it seemed like. So um, there's a lot going on out there, Mel. Obviously, these headlines, the risks, and I'll just address one last thing, which is, Guy referenced uh, uh, Nike. I will reference the fact that the disappointment of watching a Starbucks going down, 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 I think part of that is obviously the shutdown. The other part is, let's be honest, that stock was stretched. And when I say stretched, I mean from a PE perspective. It was trading extremely high, in my opinion. When you're well into the 30s, into the mid-30s, I think that's really, really high, given what the business is and the business model and how dependent they really are on China. So with China shutting down, that's another one where it's just a gut punch for Starbucks again. Jeff, it seems like there's a confluence of concerns in the market right now. And so which is the greatest for you? Boy, it, it's so tough. Ultimately, I think it all comes back to inflation and what the Fed's going to do. I think whether you're talking about geopolitical concerns or anything else, it always comes back to that. So I'll be paying most attention to the Fed meeting this week and how they guide policy. I think the market's going to react pretty dramatically to that if, in fact, they telegraph that they're going to move even more aggressively than the market thinks. So I think that's really important. But very near term, day to day, all the headlines we're dealing with. You know, China is important and, you know, they're guiding to five and a half percent GDP growth this year. I think that's the lowest in some 40 odd years. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, the zero COVID policy means probably that is even too high. So we're talking about all of these companies that are exposed to China, you know, the Nike, Starbucks, Apple, whatever it is. Part of me thinks, though, that if you look at when those stocks peak, so take Nike, August of 21, Apple, December of 21, Starbucks, July of last year. So. You've had a little bit of pain 
in these names already. So I think that, you know, the reason maybe you're not seeing such dramatic moves because of some of these forward looking headlines relative to China is because we've already seen those stocks move lower and they are good, profitable businesses. And I think maybe the most important thing is that they do have pricing power. And we've mentioned Nike a couple of times, but Guy kind of hit right on it. You look at maybe 10% down max for Nike here. So back to that pre-COVID high. So you're getting to the point where even some of these future risks that we're talking about, maybe some of it's already reflected in the price. So you start looking at these businesses. Is that price stand guy or is another round of potential supply chain disruptions, another layer of inflationary pressure, another shutdown in China, lockdown? I mean, is that do you think that's even partially? I understand what Jeff is saying, that the pullback in these stocks make them a little bit less vulnerable because their their P's are simply lower. Um, But do you think that that would be enough to go back to pre-COVID levels? It's interesting. That's what we have to gauge, right? So right now, at Nike's close, say it's off 35%, I think, from its all-time high that Jeff just mentioned. Um, I think we're getting close. And I do think, it's again, just my opinion, I think there's a real good chance we'll get down to those pre-COVID highs, which come in around 105, and then you're trying to game it out. How does it set up in earnings? And I still think um, they have the earnings growth, not necessarily to back up the valuation we saw a few months ago, but to certainly back up the valuation it's trading at now. And everything is looking for a trade. So, you know, I don't know if I can answer that necessarily, but what I will say is down 35% with a potential another 8 to 10% to the downside in the earnings next Monday. I think it sets up real well for a trade on the long side. The one positive thing, Karen, I always try and find the bright side of things, don't I? Yeah, just look at your sweater. <laughs> Is that yes. um, maybe these companies have learned a thing or two in terms of dealing with the supply chain disruptions that they dealt with last year and prior to that even? Well, that's a good point. And also the ones that we're talking about, the Starbucks, the Nikes, I mean, these are really big companies. And you would think if anybody is going to be able to get capacity or get cargo ships, that it would be them. But I think this idea that Starbucks and Nike had this big growth engine, which deserves a premier multiple, that I don't know that we should look at it that way anymore, right? We see such uncertainty in China that I don't think it's a positive. I don't think it's the positive that it used to be. Starbucks at 23 times. Sure, it's a lot cheaper than Pete was saying when it was in the 30s. That was too high. This I wouldn't short it, but I feel like the market. It's still above a market multiple now. And maybe this growth engine is, is stalling. And I think that's the question here. What what is priced into these stocks, Jeff? And should a China, a big China exposure actually be discounted now? And have we gotten there yet? I think you have to think about the China story, you know, both short term and long term, right? So short term, there are vulnerabilities all over the place. The zero COVID policy is not going anywhere. I sort of had hopes that they would start to move away from that this year. Not happening. But I don't know that you can say the China growth story is completely over for these companies. It's still a huge economy growing at a good clip compared to a lot of the world. So longer term, you know, these companies have strategies there to grow. And I think generally speaking, they're intact. But to Karen's point, it is more complex now, you know, whether you're talking about regulation uh, or any number of other things. So that premium that was baked into those stocks, you know, probably lower than what it once was. So we probably won't get back to where we were before thinking about the, the China growth premium. But maybe, you know, another five, 10 percent down from here. And then you're pricing in something that's a little bit too low. So I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And the long term China growth story is, is still not done.
All right, let's dive deeper into Apple right now. The stock is down more than 2.5% today, closing below its 200-day moving average for the first time since last June. It is now off more than 17% from its 52-week high, and the chart master says investors should be ready for more pain ahead. Let's get to Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, what do you see? Well, it's very heavy, and we'll look at the charts, but the main thing is this, that this is perhaps the most widely held stock in the planet, and it is really only as of now garden variety in terms of the sell-off. And we'll look at the stats together. Let's look at the first chart. And so uh, what do we know? There are no judgments here except that arrow. I put that arrow in, but it's a well-defined uptrend. And that line connects the COVID low with the sell-off in September, with the sell-off in the beginning of this year. And then here we are, we broke trend uh, almost uh, a week and a half. Now look at the second chart and where might we go? Well, we're into support. You can see the horizontal line. The peak, of course, was Gen 4. And we're down from actual peak to now 17.92%. That high was 182.94, as all will know. So where can we go? Anybody's guess? Here's mine. Third chart. That peak, that spike that you see there uh, where the second line is drawn, that was September 2nd of 2020. At that point, Apple was trading some 65% above its 150-day moving average. Compare that to its dot-com peak, it was only about 80%, meaning that was the one of the most extended moves on record. I think we'll retrace to that level. That level is 138. And so the final chart, that would represent a 25% decline were we simply to go back to the September 2nd spike high when it was so very extended above that. Now, 25%, we're down, what, 18 now. Is that garden variety? It actually is. Final table. Take a look at this. So this depicts, in summary form, every 15% plus decline in Apple since the financial crisis low in 2009. So there have been 10 instances where the stock sold off 15% or more. And the average decline of those um, 10 instances, you can see it right there, is negative 30.7. The median is negative 29.4. And here we are down uh, 18 plus. And so why can't it do what it did in 2013? It dropped 45%. 2016, it dropped 33. Support, we're into it, but support is not a plywood board or a concrete floor. It's a mattress top and you sink into support. At some point, it'll find it, but I don't think it's here. Is your guess that, that if, if Apple reaches that point of 138, that around there, that's where the market finds its footing more broadly? Well, that would be interesting, right? Because what we know is that the market itself, the internals are as bad as you could have it. We know that half of all stocks in the Russell 3000 have basically lost more than 25%. And we know that 25% of the Russell 2000 is down more than 50%. So what you need to see is some of these last holdouts and then add to that big energy names finally giving way or financials getting worse and you can get your market down more than it is now, which is only down 13% on the Russell. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Pete, what's your outlook for Apple? I know you loved it in the past, loved it, loved it, loved it. Now what? I continue to love it, but I will say with a little caveat that um, I love it, but I'm not buying more just yet. Matter of fact, if it got down to those levels, 
that Carter's talking about 138. I probably would get interested then, Mel. But, you know, Apple, like a lot of names, did get a little bit stretched. We all talked about the, the, the valuation levels that a lot of these various names did get to. So this pullback, I think what, I, what really makes me feel a little bit better, not a lot better, but a little bit better about what's going on with Apple is the implied volatility. So in other words, as you know, any stock that I own, I will sell calls against it when it makes sense. And right now, when you look at Apple, it was trading implied volatility at about a 30 or a 31. Now that implied volatility of the near-term options in March and going out to April is above 40. As a matter of fact, it's as high as 47 in the shorter term. 42, then down to 41 when you get to April. So if I can collect against Apple selling and I'm getting much more a premium now than I was, it's exactly what I'm going to do. We've already got the dividend yield. We know about the buybacks. But this gives me the advantage to be able to hold on where I'm selling implied volatility of -of out-of-the-money calls to get that kind of premium. That's a pretty high premium for Apple. You don't normally see that. So it gives me at least a little bit of comfort that I can get a little bit more premium and make these push to the downsides feel a little bit better, not a lot better, but a little bit better as they fall. Just quick, Guy, do you think that uh, if Apple reaches that 138 level, which would be less than the average decline, uh, as Carter had said, for Apple, which is 30 percent, that that the markets would be close to a low? Yeah, I think that's exactly what you're waiting for. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Guy. I'm sorry, Mel. I'm sorry, Jeff. No, what I was going to say quickly was that 138 level, that's the low we saw on October 4th, and then we obviously had a significant bounce. So Pete's looking at this exactly the right way. Use volatility as your friend, but it also suggests you probably have further room to the downside. So 138 lines up really well, and it should, in my opinion, coincide with an S&P 500 that might get down to that 4,000 level or so. So I'm with you on that one. All right, coming up, Musk's metal mess. The Tesla CEO publicly defending Ukraine as Russia's invasion rages on, but the EV maker hasn't cut all of its ties. We've got the details ahead. But first, a biotech bump. Moderna surging more than 8% as COVID cases spike in China. Inside the numbers next. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you get serious? Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of vaccine makers Moderna and Pfizer both jumping sharply as COVID cases surge in China. Moderna up nearly 9 percent, Pfizer up 4 percent. Elsewhere in the space, the IBB biotech ETF higher for most of the day, but finishing out in the red just can't shake the terrible years. Um, and I say plural that it's had. Uh, Jeff Mills, what do you make of these moves? So we've been talking about the IBB for a while, and I think the general consensus is that if you want biotech exposure, it's a good place to be. It's diversified. You're not trying to play the vaccine game in, in picking some of these individual stocks. But I will say that 120 level uh, is, is very important, and I'd like to see it kind of hold around those levels. It was the all-time high prior to 2021. It was resistance kind of until that 2021 breakout. So it's flirting with breaking below that again. So I would pay very close attention to that. Uh, the moves individually with BioNTech and Moderna, Certainly interesting today. I think Biontech was up more, maybe by 4%, probably for good reason. I think if, if the stocks were moving because of what's going on in China, that company stands to benefit a little bit more with some of the partnerships they have there on the pharma side. Um, but, you know, Moderna, we've been talking about this for a while. You know, it's, they're likely to have a pretty significant revenue drop, sort of regardless of what happens looking into 2023. And I don't think Omicron was particularly helpful. You know, the, the Moderna CEO came out and said, you know, more vaccines, this is going to be great. But I think more people were infected. Uh, the, it was less severe. Uh, there's more data coming out relative to natural immunity. So I think that mass market uh, is gone. So I don't think that stock is going back to 500, certainly anytime soon. There's a fourth shot, though, potentially, right. that, that may be needed. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Obviously good for both Pfizer and Moderna. And we were talking before the show about, you know, could this be a whole other market now for yeah. Moderna and Pfizer if China decides that maybe their vaccine wasn't good enough and they should sort of start over? That was interesting to me. I like Pfizer. I've been long Pfizer. It had a great run. Then it fell off sharply. I think in this environment, you know, a low P.E. with a dividend and um sort of less the risk reward to me is compelling not a high flyer i like it right there are also treatments now being developed for covid which will you know alleviate some of the the symptoms of it guy which could also help a situation in china let's say no question about it. And I'm going to go sort of off the board for 500, mm. please. And, and look at something's going on with Bristol Myers, BMY. I mentioned it because, you know, traded up to $71 way back in the fall of 99. Huge sell-off, subsequent move. You had these monster technical double tops. Well, very quickly we're approaching and getting through those levels. You can make a very compelling case for Bristol on valuation. Speaking at a Barclays healthcare conference in London tomorrow, I still like Bristol Myers here. I mean, I think that to me in a big cap pharma space is a place worth looking at. Pete, just quick, your your top pick. Yeah, my top pick would be Pfizer. And the reason I say that is the gap moves that you get out of Moderna, if you're on the right side of it, great. If you're on the wrong side of it, not so fun. And was mentioned by Milsey, uh, 500 down to 117. Today it opened and got up to 166, finished at 150. That can be fun, but only if you're on the right side of it. I love the way that, that Pfizer trades, the dividend, as Karen points out. And this is not just a play on what's been going on for the last couple of years. There is plenty within the pipeline. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Musk in the middle. The Tesla CEO publicly defending Ukraine as tensions rage on. But the EV maker is still mixed up in some Russian metal. The details next. Plus, China stocks tank. The K-Web at all-time lows. Are these names in danger of getting delisted? The traders break down the China trade next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Elon Musk has been a vocal and financial supporter of Ukraine in its efforts to beat back the invasion from Russia. At the same time, a CNBC.com report details a Tesla began buying aluminum from a Russian company, Rusal, starting in 2020. Tesla, like many other large automakers, has ties to Russian suppliers. The founder of Rusal, Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, is currently being sanctioned. The author of that story, Laura Kolodny, joins us now with some more details. Laura, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Is there any evidence that perhaps Tesla has ceased doing business with Rusal recently since the, since the invasion started? I spoke with the employees and former employees who had insight into all the supply chain issues, and there was no indication that they had severed that relationship yet. But global supply chain issues are complicated, and it takes time to find substitutes or to change a business relationship like that. So I wouldn't expect anything to suddenly change. There, there is immense pressure. I mean, Already, Elon Musk had sort of tipped his his hand to, to inflationary pressures that are very, very difficult to deal with. He talked about nickel, and if anybody had a nickel line, please let me know. <laughs> so he's probably right. under tremendous pressure on top of having to pull out of of, Rus- of the Rusal agreement. I don't know if they will pull out of the Rusal agreement. Sanctions could demand it, or they might make an ethical call. But uh, sometimes. There is simply no other supply of a certain quality and companies will decide to keep doing business with, you know, a supplier in uh, an area where there's conflict. Um, In the past, you know, Tesla has also relied on and they still primarily rely on other suppliers. Uh, Rusal is not their only vendor for these metals. Uh, They work with Hydro, which has operations throughout Europe. So they may not be as reliant on Rusal as they would with a single source supplier, but we have yet to see if they will sever that relationship. Laura, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Would you know if there's, if they can get out of the contract, if there's a force majeure or, or war or something that would allow them to exit if they wanted to? Well, I have seen invoices and other internal communications uh, referencing the Rusal aluminum coming into their German factory in Brandenburg, which is soon to open. Uh, I have not seen the exact terms of the contract, so I do not know. And and finally, Laura, do the other automakers also, I mean, you mentioned the story that they all do business with a lot of these suppliers. Tesla's not alone in this, is it? Tesla is not alone. I can't speak to the other automakers' relationships with Rusal in particular, but a global supply chain research firm called Interos uh, did some analysis for CNBC, and they found that the four four of the largest uh, domestic automakers in the U.S. all have at least one relationship with a Russian supplier, and 13 Russian companies are supplying automakers with, you know, something on a direct basis, most likely raw materials. All right. Laura, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for your reporting. Laura Kolodny, you. you can read her full story on CNBC.com. All right, there's a difference, though, between Tesla and some of the other global automakers, Guy, and that is you don't hear Mary Barra on Twitter challenging Vladimir Putin to man-to-man combat with Ukraine being the stake. I mean, you know, Tesla has really gone out there. Elon Musk specifically has really gone out there to back Ukraine. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he challenged Vladimir Putin to a, a fight, if I'm not mistaken. I, I mean, you know, I mean, it's pretty fascinating. And your point is well taken. And I would say, and I think we all agree, you know, Tesla's far more than just an auto manufacturing company. I think we've all come to that conclusion correctly. Uh, but it's not just Tesla. I think it's important to point out. I mean, aluminum is in so many different industries. And part of what's going on here, Russia, Ukraine, is not just for it, again, bring back Russian empire. I mean, this is a commodity play at a global level as well. Russia, obviously, on one end, but Ukraine, I think, is the fourth largest producer of commodities on the planet. How do you trade this thing? Well, Tesla traded down to 700 a couple, I think, a week or so ago, bounced back up to that prior all-time high, 903, and here we are at 766. The ranges have been defined for you. You I think if it gets back down to 700 again, you buy it for a trade once more. Yeah, I mean, the thought that perhaps other automakers who also, you know, source from Russia could be forced at some point to pull out. I mean, Jeff, the stocks are already dealing with the inflationary pressure aspect of things. Yeah, it's a little bit insult to injury here, for sure. And just on the Tesla front, I mean, I've been pretty vocal about the valuations just being too high. I think you could actually trade down to between 400 and 500 before all of this is over. Just, you know, looking at the chart to my eye, that's what it looks like. And I also think it's interesting, too. I mean, I don't know this to be uh, certain, but if you look at some of these ESG strategies and such, I mean, I would imagine Tesla would find its way into some of those. And if there's an issue relative to exposure to Russia, I wonder what happens there if they could end up getting kicked out of some of those fund strategies. Just something interesting to think about. But more to your point, you know, Ford was a final trade of mine a couple of weeks ago. You know, it was back down to rising support. It's back down to eight times earnings. I mean, looking pretty good, but the chart is breaking down. They're dealing with this issue. Um, This is only making it more difficult. But if I had to pick between the two, I would certainly rather a Ford versus a Tesla at these levels. I think the question here for Tesla is how much, where does it lose and how much does it lose? Does it lose more on the social ethical front if it's, if it keeps sourcing from Russia or does it lose more on the sales front if it has to either not supply the cars that are in demand or raise prices? Karen, where would you stand on that? Okay, he did just would you rather himself. I know you saw that, right? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. It's a tricky, it's, it's very tricky for all of them, right? I don't know if maybe the answer is do they, do they have an intermediary that somehow a Glencore or somebody like that that somehow solves the problem? I don't know. I mean, there's how much of the multiple of Tesla is the magic of Elon? I don't know. Yeah. But I wouldn't short it. But I'm not long either. Too expensive for me. All right. Coming up, China tech tumbles. The KYB ETF falling to all-time lows. So is the China trade still investable? The traders break it down. And speaking of lows, Netflix doing a pandemic round trip and returning to one key level. We are streaming into that one next. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money right after this. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, a K-Web catastrophe. The Chinese Internet ETF down 11% today, falling to a new all-time low. Some of these names getting slaughtered this year. Pinduoduo falling whopping 84%. Alibaba, Tencent, and others also down significantly. Let's bring in David Riedel, founder and president of Riedel Research Group. David, great to have you back with us. Um, you know, one can be bullish, the long-term China story. But here's the question right now. Are these stocks investable? I mean, between 
Pandemic shutdowns either before or now, Beijing's own crackdowns, possible delisting from the United States. There's just so many problems and issues facing this group. That's right. And the problem is not so much the underlying fundamentals, though you do highlight some real problems that they have. Higher oil prices are very bad for China. You know, the worst COVID outbreak since 2020, very bad for China. Continued focus on the zero COVID policy, you know, Foxconn shutting down today. Uh, these are big deals. Um, but the reality is these U.S. listed companies, especially the ones that are variable interest entities, which are uh, sleight of hand to circumvent Chinese law prohibiting foreigners from investing in Internet companies, um, are not sustainable structures. They just they're just not. So, no, people should not be investing in these VIE companies. Uh, they should be finding equivalent companies or other ways to get exposure to China if they want it. But they have to be careful right now because it's got some serious headwinds. David, I can't quite figure out what's going on. China, Russia, they, they had that pact they signed pre-Olympics. I think it was a 5,400-word document that they put out. What are the chances that in this um, war they align themselves somehow with Russia? And what does that mean for their stocks or stocks in general? Yeah, I don't think you're going to see a lot of uh, direct alignment of China with Russia. Um, Europe and the U.S. are much more important to China than they are to to Russia um, as markets and as partners and all kinds of things. So I think you're going to see them um, trying to sort of thread the needle on their, their rhetoric, but I don't think you see an outright alignment with them. I think you need to understand that China has some good opportunities, has a good growing consumer class, has an evolving economy, but you've got to invest in it in Hong Kong or in Shanghai, uh, you know, on names that are not these variable interest entity names, because that's not sustainable. But even so, David, I mean, putting, and these are major concerns, but putting, you know, Russia, Ukraine aside, putting delisting aside, and let's say you're not looking at those VIEs, um, are, are even Chinese domestic names at this point worth investing in, given the economic backdrop for China? Well, the economic backdrop for China is certainly challenging, with especially with the resurgence of COVID there. But it's not uh, it's not heading towards any sort of failure. Their balance sheets are much more strong, much stronger than they were five years ago. They've really cleaned up the shadow banking situation uh, pretty aggressively recently. They've invested a lot in their um, social contract uh, with uh, social, social security, pensions, health care, education, that kind of thing. So they're doing some things really right. Um, and you just got to find places to play that. But, you know, people really bet on the tutoring companies and then they outlawed that. So you really do need to be careful uh, and talk to trusted partners who, who can have an insight into what's going on on the ground, because it's tricky. You gave us a, a list of three companies to absolutely avoid, PDD, Pinduoduo, 51 Jobs, which is ticker jobs, and then Tyson, which seemed out of left field. Can you explain yeah. Tyson? Yeah, you know, we have a lot of experience with bird flu and the impact of a, of a very contagious bird flu like we see uh, in the U.S. right now, and that could really hurt Tyson. I mean, we've got the most uh, virulent case of bird flu in commercial flocks in the U.S., in Iowa, in these big egg-laying states, uh, and you've got millions of, uh, of, of birds that are at risk of being culled in order to stop this bird flu. You could see tens of millions of birds um, taken out of the, uh, the farms uh, as a result of this, and that's a lot of downside for Tyson. All right. Uh, David, great to have you with us. Thank you. David Thank you. Riedel. 
Riedel Research. Um, we're focusing on tech, but I, I did want to go there because obviously we're facing all sorts of other inflationary pressures here, especially in the food chain. Pete, what do you make of China tech? You know, Mel, um, I, I've stayed away from it for a really long time, and I've, I've only been trading with the options. I've not traded stocks for a long time. As you remember, I, I was luck and coffee for a long time. And after that experience, I said, you know what, never again. They're never going to catch me back in there again. I will say this. One of the things that we are seeing trading right now is what appears to be, to me at least, individual stocks they are selling. The sellers are everywhere, right? And we know that by the reaction we're seeing in some of those names. And I think they're hedging right now against some of these big, huge ETFs, as you mentioned, like KWEB, like FXI. We're seeing a lot of call buying in there, and that is not bullish. What I think is happening right now is the selling of a lot of individual names and hedging that by buying some of these big, large ETFs to hedge to the upside if they're wrong. So it's, it's really interesting to watch how this is playing out right now, but I'm only in those options, Mel, because I don't think you can, I don't know how you can say, you know what, I feel really confident about buying these stocks right now. I don't know how you can do it. Pete, I got a question for you. Are you seeing the short yeah. interest? I, I can't tell from the data. Is it really, really high? And that's why you're seeing that call buying? Well, that, that could be, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I really haven't been checking that, Karen, but I would say this, the volumes are absolutely outrageous. And when I say, outra say outrageous, uh, today was a great example of that. When I was looking at a couple of the various different ETFs, for instance, I'm looking at just monster days in the last couple of days versus what's been the average, you know, the three-month average and so forth. So the volumes are there to say that there is some real players in there. It's not just mom and pops. These are monstrous trades that we are seeing that are going on right now. All right. Coming up, high ratings, shares of Nielsen Holdings surging on reports of a potential buyout. We'll tell you who is looking to scoop it up. Plus, no chill for Netflix. The streamer dropping in today's session, and the stock just made a return, a big one, to one key level. The details next when Fast Money's back. Welcome back to Fast Money. A pair of media stocks topping the tape today. Shares of Nielsen surging 30% on reports the TV rating companies and advanced talks to be bought by a group of private equity firms, including Elliott Management. And Paramount jumping more than 10%, its best day in exactly one year. The former Viacom CBS posting its highest close since its rebrand just last month. Karen, you pointed this one out. Yeah, I was sort of hoping they would be in talks with Elliot or some <laughs> others, but not that I know of. I mean, this has been, I, I've thought it's cheap for a while, higher than here, lower than here. It's not surprising that it could be a takeover target, but it's sort of been elusive so far. I don't know why it was up this much today. Hmm. All right. Uh, meantime, let's take a look at Netflix setting a new 52-week low. Today's losses mean the stock has lost all of its gains since the pandemic took hold two years ago. It's just the latest stock to make a full round trip over that period. Peloton, Zoom, DocuSign have already given up their gains. I thought we pulled forward demand. Don't they still have those people, theoretically, Karen, who are subscribing or whatnot to their services? You would think. And also maybe they made money. Some yeah. of them maybe didn't. I would think, the yes. But that growth multiple that was so interesting to investors before, mm -hmm. that's likely gone. And I wonder if the IGV, which has come about 90 percent of the way back to pre, is, it, is that going to come to the do a full round trip? I don't know, but it's I'm staying short. Yeah. Guy, what do you make of some of these names? 
Netflix, I mean, literally yeah. been cut in half since the Halloween high. I mean, it's a $700 stock. It's actually more than cut in half here. Boo. I think it's interesting here. I will say that. Boo. I know. I was going to say boo. You beat me to the punch. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I thought it was interesting $80 ago. So that's clearly wrong. I'll say I'm just looking at levels of support. I mean, if you want to get down to brass tacks, sort of 280 was the low that we bounced from back in October of 2019. I'm hard-pressed to believe we'll get there, but that should be the line in the sand. All right, moving on. Let's uh, check out the short arc ETF, turning Kathy Wood's flagship fund on its head. It is up more than 60% this year, while the ARK Innovation ETF just had a new 52-week low. The SARC, which is the anti-Kathy Wood ETF, is now worth more per share than the ARK ETF itself. So if you could buy only one of these right now, would you rather bet on Kathy Wood or against her right now? Jeff Mills. Oh, boy. I, I think the, the answer depends on how long I'm going to have to hold these things. I mean, I think if you're talking about a multi-year holding period, I'd actually rather buy ARC. I mean, I think over the, the relatively long term, you know, over the last five years, ARC is still outpacing the S&P by a pretty good clip. So I think this anti-ARC ETF may be a really good trading vehicle. And I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I don't think a lot of these unprofitable stocks are going to snap back right away. But I also don't think that Kathy Wood is necessarily a horrible investor and that kind of betting against her and, and having something that moves inverse to her investment strategy is necessarily a good long-term play. Pete, what would you say? Well, I'd probably be in the anti right now, but I'm already in there because I've actually been loading up on puts for the last uh, four or five days. And believe it or not, they're absolutely exploding to the upside because it keeps going down, keeps going further. I have puts in the innovation, the genome, fintech, you name it. You know, it's just and it's all because of the option paper that we have been seeing, despite the fact they're all three were at 52-week lows. They just keep setting a new 52-week low almost every day. So I'm in those puts, but I'm starting to think about trimming them and getting out just because I don't know how much further they can really go from here, Mel. But there still is some room because they've made some pretty big moves that I didn't expect to happen as fast as it did already. I mean, ARC has been going down slowly since February of last year, Guy. So one would think that you're closer to a bottom than to anything else at this point so what would you do yeah but we no look absolutely you know we could have said that 40 dollars ago on the arc etf and i'm sort of with pedro on this one the most innovative thing about the arc etf over the last six months has been this anti-arc etf quite frankly <laughs> and i still think that probably has upside and the arc etf has downside so it shows no sign either volume wise or panic wise of making a bottom so although i think pete's right to start to trim there seems to be more room to the downside, more pain ahead. One thing I would say, though, about ARC, it has limited, verifiable, quantifiable downside, mm-hmm. whereas the other one does not. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that might not be enough, enough of an endorsement, though. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a pound the table, that's for sure. Coming up, Bank Blues, Barclay is making some moves in the products it offers, and that had options traders betting on some withdrawals. The details next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Marvell. Catch the full exclusive interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. And do not forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox. For the CNBC Investing Club, sign up now at the CNBC.com 
slash join the club or by using the QR code on your screen. All right, Barclays today suspending sales of certain crude oil ETNs. The company saying this has nothing to do with the crisis in Ukraine, but rather a lack of issuance capacity. The news kicking off a blizzard of bearish options activity. Let's go to Mike Coe, who's got the action. Mike. Yeah, so we saw them suspending the uh, oil ETN and also the VXX short-term VIX futures ETN. It traded six times. The average daily put volume puts outpaced calls by nearly five to one. It was mostly short dated put buying that we saw. The March nines that expire at the end of this week were very active, but actually declined below that strike afternoon. And we saw the April eights picking up activity then over 4,500 of those traded for about 32 cents a piece. So buyers of those puts are betting that the ADS, that's the American Depository Share of Barclays Bank, will decline below that eight dollar share price by at least the 32 cents that they paid by April expiration. Um, Jeff Mills, uh, what do you make of this? Well, I guess the good thing I can say is it's trading about as cheap as it ever has. But generally speaking, my macro view is not all that financial or bank friendly. You know, I've been talking about the potential for an economic slowdown. I think there's real potential for a yield curve inversion here. And I think if you look across the board at financials, you know, now they're trading below the 200 day. The 200 day is sloping downward. So I just don't think the setup is generally all that good for stocks like this. All right. Mike Coe, thank you. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Take a look at shares of a firm down 15% today. Bloomberg News reporting that it canceled an asset-backed security sale, a $500 million asset-backed security sale after a major investor backed out because of market volatility. This is a group, of course, that has been pummeled since, I don't know when, December, November, longer because of high valuation concerns um, and then also concerns that the government could step in and start regulating this space. Karen, what do you make of this news? Well, I think if that's the case, they can't do these debt deals. And I don't mm-hmm. believe that the firm can't do a deal. That would be problematic. But, it's, you know, you see then the SoFi down square is down a lot. To me, it's just that whole fintech space. We always compared it to banks and how out of whack it seemed. Now it's just coming down to earth. But I still think that that divergence between those two is still too big. Wide. Yeah. OK. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Pete. I'm going to give you Copang, Mel. Jeff. Steady energy name for you, EOG. Guy. Bristol Myers, sister. (laughs) Karen. I'm going to be right there with Guy. I like Merck. Fun to be with you here, Mel. Yeah, the ladies in the house. Thanks for watching Fast Money tonight. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.